Thank you so much. Um, if you have your copy of God's Word, um, open up to the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, we are in a second, the second week of a new four-week series where I am just sort of walking through uh, what scholars uh, contend is just the four major Christological passages that exist uh, in, in the New Testament in particular. The reason why uh, we're doing this is primarily to just get our eyes and, and to put our attention in the right place, which it should always be, but to look at Jesus, especially coming out of this political season that we're in, what we've seen, uh, what we saw several weeks ago, and just to sort of readjust, if you will. Now, um, in Hebrews 1, uh, we'll, we'll jump in here in just a second, but uh, my wife and I, we've, we've been married for 16 plus years. Uh, we dated for about three years prior to that. And uh, one of the things that when Haley and I first started dating, we, we learned pretty quickly that we're both pretty competitive people and we both like to win and so when we play games like we the goal is kind of like to destroy the other person like and win whether it's dominoes uh whether it's spades uh we we play nerds you know whatever it is right but the thing that I'm I'm beginning to realize as I get older uh and I I knew this when we first started dating uh but I'm just coming to terms with it more and more is uh she always wins like because she's clearly uh, more clever and a lot smarter than I am. And I've, I've never said I was smarter than, than my, my bride. And we try to teach this to our kids, uh, not that mom's smarter than dad, but we try to teach this competitiveness in, in games. Uh, and so when we play, like we play to win. And if you're not going to play to win, then we're not going to play. All right. At my former church, I was so bad at this. I, I was the guy that uh, got the men's softball group together. And the first time I did it, when I first got there, like everybody just came and played. And man, we were just getting romped. All right. And so I said, second season, we were playing. I said, look, here's the deal. I said it from the pulpit. Uh, we're starting a, men's, a new men's softball team. If you are not any good, this is, you cannot play on our team. We're not having tryouts, but like, if you want a fellowship, come to the house for dinner. Like, we're going to play to win. And if you can't throw a baseball and you can't hit, you're not playing on this team. Do you understand? Right? Pastorally, we'll, we'll coach you up later, but we want to win. Even in church softball, right? You want to win. And there's this idea that in games and in, and in life, we're, we're jockeying back and forth to be sort of the superior person, whether it be in competition, whether it be in band, we want to be first chair or second chair. We want to be the best at, at whatever it is that we do. And, and that's good. And, and we should strive for those things. But the problem comes when we begin to sort of misplace those affections and those desires. In particular, how we view Jesus and how we see him and making sure that he remains our mission and that we stay on task to do the things that he's called us to do. And so here's the thing that I believe has happened over the past couple of years with the church in general. We're missing our mission And we have forgotten that our mission is one that's primarily, it is spiritual, and and we've sort of uh, replaced it with political theory and and gamemanship. And, And don't get me wrong, we should care about politics. We should advocate for the things that the Bible advocates for. We should pray for men and women to go and rule in our government that will rule and govern in a way that reflects the Word of God. Absolutely, we should want those things. At the same time, We have to make sure that as a people, that in doing those things and being passionate about those things, we cannot and we must not forget the primary mission that God has called his people to. 
And Hebrews 1 gives us sort of a, a way to begin looking at this that I think is informative, much like Colossians did last week. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, we pick up in verse 2, where he says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now, right from the beginning, we see the author of Hebrews, which I think is Luke, by the way, just as an aside, and I'll argue with it later if you don't want, if you want to, but Luke wrote this. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But before that, he says, long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God was speaking to our fathers by the prophets. And so you have this idea that in the Old Testament, God would speak to us in a variety of ways, and he did it in a lot of incredible ways in the Old Testament. He would speak to them in visions. They would have dreams that, that they would, God would speak to them. Angels would talk. God would appear with audible voices and speak. He would appear in the midst of whirlwinds, and he would give direction and, and clarity to his church. He would miraculously write on walls, and, and you would see things that, that would appear in that way, burning bushes, even spoke out of the mouth of a donkey. Some incredible imagery that exists. And so when the writer says, long time ago, many times and in many different ways, God was speaking to our fathers by the prophets. But in these most recent days, he begins to speak to us through his son. Now, by point of application, I can't go on and not make this point. Over this past political season, every once in a while, I would get uh, emails from, from church members and people at previous churches that I'd been in. They say, hey, watch this video and tell me what you think. And, and nine times out of 10, it was a pastor that made a YouTube channel and he claimed that he had a dream, that God had given him a dream, and he had foreseen the outcome of whatever the political outcome was going to be, that he, he saw in a vision that this was going to take place. And they say, Pastor, what do you think about that? And I would just give my standard response at the very beginning. Anybody that comes to me telling me that they had a dream about future events that are going to go happen, my first response is, it's a little weird. It's a little strange. But then what's happened over the past few weeks is you've got these same pastors who said, I saw that on, on this day that this particular candidate was going to be reelected and that it didn't happen. And here's the problem. Because they're pastors and a lot of well-meaning Christians bought in to what they're saying, here's where the pastors are wrong. If you claim to hear the voice of God, and if you claim that God gave you a vision and he spoke to you in a dream about future events and you are saying it as a prophetic word as they describe it, the moment your dream or your vision is not executed in the way that you said it was, when you said you sp speak for God, you are now deemed what the Old Testament would call, and I believe Jesus would call, you're a false prophet. Because a prophet in the Old Testament, here was the standard, when you had a dream and God spoke to you, a prophet to be a prophet had to be 100% right every single time. And if you didn't, and you didn't get it right or you missed it, the punishment was in the Old Testament, you were dead. God would take your life because you were saying you were speaking for God in a way that God's not speaking. 
So you have this group of, of men that are advocating this, and, and here's why I think this is so appropriate to this text this morning as, as Paul, or Luke, excuse me, is reminding us about the way in which God is speaking to his people now. And the reason that's important is because the primary means of revelation for believers today is the word of God. It's not a dream, it's not a vision. The revelation that he's given is Jesus, and he has spoken and articulated that revelation in the word of God. And so the posture that some are taking, that he had this dream and, and I'm going to believe this and that it doesn't happen, you begin to falsely speak for, for God and you begin to misrepresent him because he didn't say that. And then the contention on the back end is I watched one pastor this week who was challenged by doing that. And he, this is what he says from the pulpit and, and, and millions of people watch his channel and they see it. He says simply this, well, the, the kingdom of, of Satan just got in the way and interfered with God's plans. Bro, if I could have jumped through my computer screen I was going to anonymously blog about him because I didn't want to leave my name on the YouTube channel, but go, this is just absolutely, this is blasphemous. And this undermines the sovereignty of God and that he is all powerful and that he doesn't live in time like we do, that he sees and he knows and he understands that this didn't happen because God wasn't powerful enough to allow it to happen. That is nonsense, friend. But Christians all across our country have, have bought into this notion and this idea when Luke writes here and he's saying, listen, God spoke that way long ago, but in these last days today, we live in the last days right now, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So one of the things that I, I love about Hebrews 1 is this idea that it's this really simple argument that the main idea of the text is just Jesus is superior than anything else. Like that's the argument. And then what Luke does is he says, listen, I'm going to give you seven points that sort of prove this. And I'm going to talk through this with the verbs and the participles. There's just seven reasons why he's superior over angels, over creation, over other created beings. Like he is it. And the reason why he addresses it is because the church at this point in this location, they were confusing other things and they were elevating angels. They were elevating other things that might have been intended for good and they were making them the functional savior over the real savior. And so he says, I spoke to you by Jesus, who has become the heir, who is the heir, appointed the heir of all things. You know, when you receive something in an inheritance from your family, you're the heir of that. You receive the, the benefits that come with the name or, or being on the, the deed, if you will. Like, you receive some things. There are benefits to this. Now, here's the crazy thing about this. When you look at other scriptures and you, you do a quick word search on, on heir of all things and, and how this applies practically to believers is this. I'm going to sort of puff your heads up a little bit, make you feel a little bit better about yourself this morning, because in Romans 8, 17, God's word says, Paul says, you, friend, in Christ Jesus are a co-heir alongside him, that the kingdom that he rules, the kingdom that he reigns over, you, you struggle with identity issues. Listen, your identity, when it's found in Jesus, we understand this truth that I'm gonna be a co-heir ruling with him, not over him, but the Bible says in Romans 8 that I become an heir as I endure the sufferings that, that come alongside with following Christ. 
To Jeffrey's point earlier, when he, he was talking and, and, and believing, like, does God have compassion enough to like understand where we are to intervene in, in those situations? The answer to that, bro, absolutely. I'm an heir with, with Christ. Like I'm in this family. Like he loves me and he, and he loves you. Like he's aware of your situation. He, he knows your turmoil. He knows your frustrations and your disappointments right now. He knows the conflict that exists in your family. He knows the conflict that exists at your workplace. He knows some of you are, are doubting your, your finances and you're struggling with those in, in a real way. Some of you are struggling with what, what God's will is for your life and what you're supposed to do three months from now or six months from now. Like God knows and absolutely, Jeffrey's right, he does have compassion for us to meet the needs in our lives. He has not forgotten us and he, and he has not forsaken us. He keeps going and he says, he's appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So we saw this in, in Colossians, by him and through him and for him, everything finds its, its worth and its sustenance in Christ because it was, it was made for him. So you were made for, for a purpose and, and for him and by him to serve him and honor him and to be on mission with him and to, to come alongside him and use your gifts and your, and your talents in the life of the local church, to use your gifts in the life of our city to seek its welfare, to reach your college campuses, TCU and, and TCC, and, and yes, some of you Southwestern students need to get saved this morning to reach that campus. He's calling us to use our gifts, to serve with him, to, to be on mission. He is the heir of all things, and he has also created the world. And then in comes one of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You know, we, we sing a lot and talk a lot about the glory of God. Y'all remember that old song? If you go to the traditional service, we sing it every once in a while, to God be the glory. Remember that one? And we sing about glory, and what I found as I've gotten older, a lot of people don't know what glory means. We refer to it as I'm going to glory, which is, which is a, a right term for that. I'm going to heaven. Uh, at a church I served in, they, they bought uh, two of these, these big charter buses. They were old New Jersey transit buses. And they converted them and like restored them. And uh, somebody had the really good idea or the really terrible idea uh, that they named one bus heaven and one bus glory. It's like if you got on the bus, as a youth minister, it was really embarrassing to be on these things. Like here comes heaven and glory. Um, but also the irony of this, like I don't want to be on a bus at this point that's traveling to heaven or glory, like I'm not in for that. Like we can think of better names than, than this at some point. And, and it was this, this idea that, that, that when we speak about glory, what we mean by that is this, is that we believe that God enters in with his people and he's near us, but we believe in what's called just the transcendence of God. He, he's above us. He's different than us. And one of the ways that he's different is his holiness and his perfection. So when we speak about the glory of God, and doing things for the glory of God. What it means in one sense is it means for the Christian to put on display the holiness and the perfection of God. So when we say to give God glory, when we say uh, give him all the glory, what we're saying is that we're making a proclamation with our lips and how we live that we are going to put the perfection and we are going to put the holiness of God on display so that people can see it. So when we say, God, reveal your glory to me, we're saying, give me some of that holiness. Make me perfect. Reform me, change me, help me look more and more like 
you. But he's the radiance of it. He's the manifestation of those things. All that God is, Jesus is. One nature, three persons. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All that Jesus is, God is, and vice versa. And so if we want to see God and know him, the answer to that is we just simply look to Jesus, for he is the radiance of the glory of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God on display. He says he's the exact imprint of his nature. We talked about this a little bit last week. It's kind of like this idea of like a stamp, like conveying image. So you put somebody's face on a stamp or, or a seal of some sort and, and you stamp it. He's the, the icon, the, the image bearer. When I was growing up in, in East Texas, one of our big vacations that we would do is we would come to Dallas-Fort Worth, and it was a big deal growing up in East Texas. And, and usually at least once in the summertime, we would come, my parents would take us, and usually with family, we'd go to Six Flags, and that was a really big deal for like an 11-year-old kid growing up in East Texas who had never been to Disney World, had not like been indoctrinated by my wife yet about that. And so you go to Disney World, like Six Flags is just nothing. We probably have employees from Six Flags here. I just offended you, sorry. Um, But we used to go to Six Flags. On the way to Six Flags, we would stop in the big old city of Grand Prairie, Texas. And the reason why we went to Grand Prairie is because there was this museum there. I don't even know if it's still there or not, but do you remember this museum called Ripley's Believe It or Not? You guys remember this? This is a crazy place, right? You would go in and they had these like wax-like figures of like famous people. So if you wanted to see a wax-like figure of of Elvis, like you'd go. They had one of of Marilyn Monroe at at the time. Uh, I found John Wayne. He was there. They'd have baseball players, Hank Aaron, uh, Babe Ruth. They had all the football players. And you go and you look at these wax figures. And and for an 11-year-old that's never been to Disney World, it was like, this looks exactly like them, right? Like they're all shiny and like sheeny. And some of them are like, the wax is melting, you know? And you're like, this is kind of weird but it's this imprint. But the thing is that that imprint or that figure, it it doesn't quite carry the the nature and the sustenance of of who that celebrity would have been. There's no soul. They they don't think. They they can't speak. Uh, There's no uh, cognition going on whatsoever. It's just this inanimate object that exists and is there. But when he describes Jesus as being the exact imprint, what it means is, is that Jesus is not only God, but he conveys all the attributes of God and, and, and the character of God. Like wrapped up in his ability to do crazy, miraculous things is the compassion that exists within his hearts for you and me. Wrapped up in, in, in his omnipotence, his being all powerful is this merciful God who deeply cares about where his people are, where his children are, where his family is and what they're doing and and how they think. You see, God doesn't just care about your physical well-being. He cares about that, but he also cares equally, and I would even say with more passion, he, he cares about your well-being, but he also cares about the condition of your hearts today. About the inner struggles, the anger, the, the, the bitterness, the, the disappointment that has, has risen up in, in, in some of us for, for a variety of reasons. 
And the primary goal that the target for the Lord this morning is, is yeah, he, he may allow you to endure some hardship for the next few months or, or maybe as a church, like the church speaking broadly, maybe we're, we're entering into a time of, of there's going to be a little bit of persecution and an erosion of, of religious liberties with, with some of the stuff that's on the agenda, the Equality Act and some of these things and the implications that those things have for churches. And it may be that we're going to be knocked back on our heels for a little bit. And I pray for, for prosperity and I pray for peace. But I, I said this to you last week and I think it's worth saying again. The church oftentimes grows the quickest and it thrives the most when it's under persecution and suffering. Awakening and revival historically typically come when God's people are under hardship. If you study revival, it's as clear as day. It happens. And so somebody said, well, pastor, aren't you disappointed about all the things that, that are going on politically? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, look, I, if I could wave my finger, I would do this and that. And I, I, would, I would appeal to these certain things and, and want these certain things. But I also know this as a student of history, that when there is an increase in suffering and when there is an erosion of, of, of religious liberty in particular, the church, more often than not, it thrives. And I think one of the primary reasons it, it does that, apart from the work of God, is I think it sort of eliminates the cultural Christians that often exist within churches because they go, not worth it, I'm out. And you end up with a, with a group of brothers and sisters who are on the same mission, bought into the same vision, serving with the same purpose, and really caring for each other, being present with each other, meeting needs in each other's life. He says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yesterday, uh, I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you this. Um, so my wife put up all of our Christmas stuff inside like probably a month ago, maybe, maybe about a month ago. And uh, outside on our house, um, up until yesterday, I, Drew Erickson, have had my Christmas lights still out. Haven't plugged them in. And my justification was, look, uh, nobody can see them from the road. I know they're there. I'm not using them. Maybe I'll leave them up all year. Maybe at some point I'll take them down. Every day Haley and I would go walk. She would typically say, is Christmas lights still up? Christmas lights still up? I said, okay, fine. Yesterday, uh, I, 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 you know, it's one of those things where you just psych yourself out or you're like, I'm, I'm just agonizing over this chore. I don't want to do this for whatever reason. And, and yesterday, uh, I said, okay, I'm going to go and take my lights down. So I get up there and I start to pull the lights down. I think I get like five or six lights down. They're sort of hanging. And then in one moment, I turned and looked the other direction. I let go of the lights. And I'm not kidding, all the way around my house, like two or 300 lights just start falling off my house. Just and, and I start hearing like glass shattering right? So I have, my lights are down. I've got the plastic things that are still kind of halfway up. They've fallen through the thing. R light ropes are on the ground. I've got glass everywhere. And I knew that today I was preaching out of Hebrews. And the thing that I thought was this idea of my, my toilsome and my laborness, the, the, the laboriousness of what I experienced yesterday, the agony of, God forbid, I had to take my Christmas lights down. And it's almost February, right? Like, how cool would it be to, to, to be said of Drew that he rules his Christmas lights by the word of his power? That he could just speak, and it is. That's what Jesus does. He speaks, 
And he rules by the power of his word. He doesn't labor. It's not toilsome. It's not hard. Why? Because he has already defeated sin, death, and evil. And so here he is ruling the universe sovereignly by the word of his power. And this is the God that comes to be with us when we open his word, like he's with us through his spirit. And he comforts us and, and he provides for us and he, and he meets our needs, physically meets our needs, emotionally and spiritually meets our needs. By the word of his power, he upholds it all. After making purifications for sins, verse three, this latter half, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as their name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know what I do um, when I get home on Sundays? We call it Sunday tired in our house. Like just you get, you get worn out. So what, what do most of us do on, on Sundays? You go home and you, you sit, you nap, right? I'm still convinced the older I get uh, and the older I do get, the more this is, uh, Jesus would have said this probably, that the most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is just take a nap. Like, I think that's a real thing. And uh, go take a nap, I sit, I cease from, from laboring and rest. Well, in this situation, it says Christ, he sits at the right hand and he rules the world by the power of his word. He's finished, it's finished. So the God of the universe that created all that we see when we look out, every mountain, every beach, every molecule that we can see and not see, and atoms, and all the way up to the Milky Way, that God upholds the world by the word of his power, and he sits at the right hand of God, and he, and he rules. For the longest time, I had a, a faulty view of Jesus that I thought for some reason he was up in heaven, like building my mansion, like getting my jewels ready for my crown, like working. And like, here's the truth of scripture. He's not doing any of that because it's done. And so he sits and he rules over the universe. And when you begin to, to hear him and you begin to hear the spirit of God speak to your heart to begin to change you and, and you, you feel God move in our, in our worship services through song and you feel him move and, and calls to response of preaching, that, that is the God of the universe through the spirit of God that's coming and speaking to you and changing you. And he's saying, hey, uh, I love you right where you're at and, and I'm, I'm so proud of you, but I, don't, I'm, I'm, I love you so much and I am too proud of you for you to just stay right where you are. And I love you so much that I want to see some change in, in your life. And, and, and don't worry about laboring because I'm going to bring the change. I'm going to be the one that changes you. You just yield to me and say, God, change me. Like, make my, my heart of, of, of clay, would you, would you, a rock, would you, would you soften it? And would you change me? This is the God that we serve. This is the Christ that we make much of. This is the Jesus of our mission. That the same God that changed you and me is the same God that wants to change the world. And he wants to change your neighbors. He wants to change your coworkers. He wants to change your spouses and he, and he wants to change your, your difficulties. But, but more than all of that this morning, right now, here's what God wants. He wants to change you. And so this morning, that's the question. If Christ is superior of all things, 
What have you put in front of that superiority today? I'm going to invite Jeffrey and the team back up, and I'm going to lead us in a time of of response and, and prayer, asking God just in in these moments to just convict and and change our hearts. So what I want you to do is bow your head and close your eyes. I want to ask just a couple of questions and let you be introspective in your own way and let the Spirit of God right now just, just deal with you. Like, Semester started up, school's beginning again. Um, things, are, things are happening and moving forward. It's a good time right now to reset and to be right with the Lord. So here's the question. You just pray to God in this moment, church. You just simply say, God, what, what in my life have I put in front of Jesus in this moment? Is it my relationships and my friendships? Is it a boy or, or is it a girl? Somebody that, I, that, I'm, that I'm allowing to sort of pull me in in a direction that I don't need to go and just say, God, what is that? Would you show me that? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you're full of anxiety and you're coping with that anxiety, with that depression and, and unhealthy ways. Looking at things that you shouldn't be looking at, pursuing people that you shouldn't pursue, allowing it to, to cause great worry in your life and in your midst. And just ask God, what is it? And then let God speak it. And then once he tells you, once he shows you, friend, the most important thing, as you confess it and you say, God, help, help me, change me. The most important thing after that is just simply to rest in the truth that you are forgiven. You're forgiven. And he's going to make you whole. Through repentance of sin, asking for forgiveness, God is going to change you. And he's not going to leave you where you are. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you don't have a personal relationship with him, you're not walking with him or you're unsure about that, I'd love to visit with you about it. The Bible just says anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Confess your sins. God's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. It's not, it's not complicated. I'll be down front. We'd love to visit with you. Uh, Matt Getty, our college minister, will be down front. He'd love to visit with you. Andrew, our church administrator, would love to visit with you about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you know him, then we sing in a way that reflects his glory. We put that perfection on display as we sing it. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and let's respond as the Lord leads. Father in heaven, we thank you that it's not a long time ago where you speak to us in those obscure ways that you have given us specific revelation that's been revealed in your son Jesus. God, that we can know you intimately, that we can walk with you deeply. Father, that you hear us and and, and in your compassion, you enter into our our struggles that we don't have to labor and and change because Lord, we, we need to yield and allow you to change us. Father, you are the the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus. You are the the perfect uh, imprint, representation, everything Jesus, you are, God is, and everything God is, you are. 
So let us now, as we sing this song and as we, and we reflect your, your worthiness and your glory and your holiness, Father, would you inhabit our, our praises? Would you uphold us, Father, with the power of your word? And would we know and feel and see and think your presence during this moment? Help us. God, we ask these things in Christ's name.